Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hi. How'd you know it was me? I have caller ID. Oh, what's it say? With a trip. It does? I have an unpublished phone, the idiot. The great story here is this vast right-wing conspiracy that has been conspiring against my husband since the day he announced for president. May of 91, Bill Clinton harassed me on the job and then basically told me, let's keep this between ourselves. We had no sexual relationship with this young woman. There is not a sexual relationship. That is accurate. Hello and welcome back to Still Watching, colon, American Crime Story, colon, impeachment. I'm Vanity Fair Senior Writer Joanna Robinson. I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. And I'm Vanity Fair's Awards and Audio Editor Katie Rich. The gang's all here for this is, uh, yes indeed, if you listened last week, you will know this is my last episode of Still Watching. Uh, tears, I, uh, if you want to hear me actually cry, you can listen to this uh, last week's Little Gold Men because that's, uh, I already cried through a podcast this week. So um, maybe, maybe. <laughs> are, are you I saying you're do- not going to cry on this one? Because I now have a new goal. <laughs> new agenda. Um, so if you're just joining us for the first time for my last episode, what we do on Still Watching, the podcast is going to continue, just FYI. Uh, Katie and Richard are going to take up the banner and, and some of our other fine folks at VF.com or VF in general will be, will be around, uh, to, to fill in. And it's going to be, I hope you guys stick with the, the rest of the season because I think this is a really interesting show. Uh, VF is sort of uniquely positioned to talk about it in an interesting way. So I, I think this is, um, a great spot for these conversations. But if you're just joining us for the first time, what we do on Still Watching, uh, is Richard and I pick a show that we're obsessed with and we watch it week to week and we break it down. Sometimes we have folks who work on the show come and talk to us. This week, uh, Katie talked to the great Kobe Smulders, uh, who plays Ann Coulter. So, uh, this is a good episode for her. And, and I think Kobe is just doing like a incredible job. Um, as someone who watched some Ann Coulter footage this last weekend, I just think uh, she's really crushing it. So, um, you were just yeah. watching that for fun, just yeah. yeah. I, that's what I do on a Saturday. You know me, <laughs> yeah. read her latest book. Sure. <laughs> um, and yeah, so so we're here to talk about episode three of uh, impeachment. 
you can always what something we love about this show is you can always email us stillwashingpod at gmail.com. Um I don't think I have the keys to Castle. Anyway, Katie Katie will now have the keys to the email castle. So you can I'm looking at it right now. It's so exciting. Oh, that's so fun. Is there anything of note that we can we can bring up some emails later if you see anything uh that looks exciting and fun uh to talk about. Um but yeah, we I mean we've gotten a lot of emails from people who sort of like lived through this firsthand we got a couple emails from people um i got some via email and also on twitter from people who were telling me that they were so young that they never they wouldn't say that they really lived through this they were too young to really like live through it so they are kind of learning about it for the first time through this and this is something that judith light said to me in our interview last week that um you know the beauty of the American crime story franchise is yes, there've been some great documentaries and podcasts, et cetera, about this, but there's, I mean, the phrase I use is spoonful of sugar. She didn't really like love that, but like, you know, there's like a, a spoonful of soap, a soapy, uh, you know, FX drama to go with your information. And if people are learning about the thing for the first time, that's kind of a, the beauty of this franchise. I don't know, Richard, do you agree? Disagree? Yeah, no, I think the way that it presents, facts as they were and then speculates like it's kind of a nice combination of the two i don't think anyone should take this as a documentary certainly no, no, no. um but not when you have you know <laughs> clive owen and <laughs> dyed white hair i mean you know they're, they're 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 this is very much television um but yeah i think that you know as someone who was a teenager when this was all happening and so was only dimly aware of it and honestly through probably the worst channels which would have been like snl skits and stuff like that like learning the mechanics behind it or at least you know a version of that um is pretty interesting and i think this episode in particular in the way that it you know introduces us to matt drudge and therefore the internet and also you know we, we meet laura ingram but also we hear about dinesh d'souza and to realize like oh my god these people are still at this today 23 <laughs> years later um it's sort of exhausting but kind of in an informative way an instructive kind of exhaustion what do you think katie um, well, I was just going to dispatch in from the uh, from the inbox with the listener emails because we got an email from uh, Jillian who was talking about being 24 now. Uh, so she was born in 1997, which is wild to me. Like, so she is now the age that Monica was when all of this happened. And she was born the year that Monica was having this affair, <laughs> like sunrise, sunset happening here. Oh my God. Um, and she just wrote it. So she's uh, she's um, in law school, I think. Yeah. Or she was in law school. Monica's experience always comes up because it's the most extreme example of a power imbalance in the workplace. Uh, when I was a kid, no one ever told me how old Monica Lewinsky was. And this is all happening now. Every time I talk about this, I repeat the fact that she was 22 because it's so mind boggling that she was the quote unquote homewrecker and the one the media attacked and joked about when she was a young adult. Um, that's something we've talked about a lot, but I just thought it was especially interesting from someone who is the age that Monica uh, was and kind of sees it with those clear eyes. Amazing. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, <laughs> just, I don't I don't ever want to be like, oh, my God, people are so young. But I'm always delighted to hear that, like, uh, you know, fairly young people listen to our podcast about this stuff. It makes me it makes me really excited uh, as as we continue to learn how to talk about television, because um, when I was. um Jillian's age, I was not thinking about television this way. So it makes me excited that like, you know, we get we get folks that age and even younger who want to like get really into a TV show with us. That makes me really happy. So Yeah, um, we're radicalizing the youths to uh <laughs> to dive too deep <laughs> on their TV shows. Um, so in addition to watching Ann Coulter uh videos for fun this weekend, I was just trying to see what 
I was trying to find contemporaneous video of her talking about Clinton because I thought that would be interesting. And I only found a little bit. She was actually talking. I found more clips of her talking before this hit about some other things, but she was still talking a lot about Clinton. Then she wrote this book, High Crimes and Misdemeanors, um, which is about what what it takes to qualify for impeachment. And uh, she was R- already it pegged to Clinton, not before Clinton. Exactly. Okay. And she was, uh, so she was positioning herself as an expert, which I think is fair given like, you know, what I saw her talk about in terms of like what would qualify here. And, and she gets really deep, you know, like we know Ann Coulter for her toxic opinions and like, you know, snarky tweets and stuff like that. But like, she's very smart. <laughs> She's a very, very smart and very knowledgeable uh, when it comes to the ins and outs of these legalities. And I, you know, like that's, that's, that's the, that's why she's so good at what she does, unfortunately, is because she's very smart. One thing she brought up in one of the interviews that I saw that I thought was really interesting is that um, she, I didn't know this, that the Watergate tapes were edited for expletives. Did you guys know that? No. Like edited by who? Uh, I don't know. But before they were released, the transcripts and whatever, before they were released to the public, they took out the expletives because it was so shocking that there was swearing in the Oval Office. Wow. And that's where like the bar was for Watergate. <laughs> and so <laughs> uh, when we get here, you know, she's talking about sort of the morality of the country slipping. And I don't love talking about things in morality terms, but I thought that was fascinating that um, – that there were expletives edited out of of the uh, of the Watergate tapes, but um, the uh, the other thing that I watched this weekend, which I genuinely do recommend, you don't have to watch Ann Coulter, but I genuinely do recommend. Matt Drudge gave a speech and then a Q and A in 1998 to the National Press Club, basically after he came to prominence around this whole Clinton Lewinsky thing, and it is fascinating if you care about journalism. As Richard pointed out, this is a show. This is a show that is really digging into sort of uh, the turn of the internet uh, and its involvement in this particular scandal and its, and its rise to power uh, thereafter Matt Drudge being this key figure. We, we meet him in this episode played by Billy Eichner. I was enthralled. If you care about journalism, if you care about the internet, if you care about all of this stuff, I was enthralled by this uh, whole conversation. Like Ann Coulter, Matt Drudge is very smart. I don't want to like have dinner with him necessarily, but like, watching him deflect. Basically, the press club invited him and they all hate him. And he gives the speech and then they they pepper him with these very tough questions about uh, lack of responsibility, lack of sourcing, like, uh, you know, basically that he runs this internet gossip site, you know, and you see it reflected. Sarah Burgess obviously plucks some quotes from that and put it in this episode when he's like talking to Isakoff and stuff like that. Um and he's just deflecting, you know, they're like, how many sources do you need to tell a story? He's like, oh, I don't know, one more than Bob Woodward's Deep Throat. And like, you know, and they're like, <laughs> you know, and they keep bringing up errors. And, he, and then he just starts rattling off all these major newspapers and TV uh, news stations, stuff like that, who had to retract stories. And he's like, you act like the Internet's the only place where this happens. This happens at all your hallowed institutions as well. And all this, you know, like he had... Good answers for everything. So I just thought that it was, but he also had a lot of respect. Like the way he talked about print media, he was really respectful of it. He wasn't like print is dead the way that Billy Eichner's version of Dredge does in this episode. He's like, I love, you know, one thing about the Dredge Reporter, people don't uh, go there, which I don't, but we, I mean, 
can I say this? We get a lot of link back traffic from the Drudge Report because mm-hmm. if a if a Vanity Fair article winds up as a link back on the Drudge Report, we get a ton of traffic for that, which will tell you how many people still read the Drudge Report. Um, and one thing that he became famous for is not just these scoops, but also these link roundups that people would just read the Drudge Report link roundups. Um, Original newsletter. Yeah, and so. Uh, and so he would talk about how he revered, like he reads all this stuff and he would, at the, back then he was the one curating all these links and he was like, you guys do great work. I love your work. I make it easy for people to find your work. I link to it directly. Like I, you know, <laughs> I'm not your enemy, uh, even though he kind of was. So anyway, I don't know if you guys, I mean, we can get into the specifics of, of our introduction to Matt Drudge via Billy Eigner and the CBS uh, merch store. But um, what do you guys think of this larger print versus internet moment conversation. Well, well, to jump ahead a little bit in the episode, there's a, the scene where he goes meet Michael Iskoff in the Newsweek office, and he says it looks like all the president's men, which is what we said during the last week. Yeah. Um, and Iskoff's like, well, you're doing all this without going to, I don't know, journalism school? And like the way I didn't go to journalism school, and so the way he said that obviously annoyed me, and it annoys Matt Drudge. And he's right. You shouldn't, I mean, not that you shouldn't go to journalism school, but you absolutely don't have to go to journalism school to be a journalist. Like, regardless of how Matt Drudge is doing it, he is a democratizing force in journalism for a lot of bad, but maybe also some good. What do you think, Richard? Yeah, I mean, I feel like the the, the sort of the dichot not dichotomy, but the sort of tension between him, like obviously respecting the traditional news media. I mean, it's his obsession with you know sort of the newsmen of old and the, the get up and everything, and oh, yeah, Walter Winchell and 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 stuff like that. Um, and 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 whatever he said, you know, at speeches at the time, and the fact that he was then kind of doing this new thing that was, in some senses, ran contrary to that, and and that's a, a, a thing expressed in this episode. Like, what are you doing? This is just gossip. This isn't real. Like, how are you running this? You know, like kind of all that. Like, and he's talking about it much like Linda Tripp has her own sort of delusions of grandeur mm-hmm. and importance. Drudge mm-hmm. is talking about like. Oh no! I scooped you. He's at, you know he's acting like he's a fellow reporter, even though he's not doing any of the work except hearing something and then putting it on the internet. Anyway, yeah. I think that that tension, that dichotomy, is illustrative of a thing that still exists very much now, which is this kind of this disruptor mentality. Which is like, I like this thing, but what if it was easier? What if it was more streamlined? And I think that what people don't realize or think about necessarily is that in so doing, they are kind of helping to destroy the thing. Um, you know, really? it's a kind of reckless improvement, I guess. Um, and obviously we owe all three of us our livelihoods to the internet. So it's not like I'm watching this episode and being like, well, that never should have happened. Like, I can't really say that, but I think we've both been on both sides of this, right? Like we yeah. had enough experience in kind of the like, you know, down and dirty internet before coming to Vanity Fair that we kind of know how that drudge method works. And what's also true yeah. is that, uh, you know, something that he said in this, in this press club, um, interview where he said, he said, how did a story like Monica Lewinsky break out of a Hollywood apartment? What does that say about the Washington press corps? And like, would Monica have broken anyway? Probably. Isakoff was on the case, but we, you know, and we see his editor initially kill his Kathleen Willey story. Um, not because Clinton called his editor and told her to kill it, but because uh, like she didn't feel like the reporting was entirely there yet. Um, and so he goes out and gets another source on the record, but like, but what is true, I, I'm not going to make any specific accusations, but like things, stories get killed because of powerful associations all the time. This is never something I've experienced firsthand 
at Vanity Fair that I can think of uh, a specific example of, but like that happens in, you know, the, the white house is very powerful and they can, they could intimidate an editor into not running something. I'm sure that has at least happened once ever in, in news. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. So this idea of someone who is operating outside of that, like all things, I think Richard makes a really good point about reckless improvement, but I think like all things, there is good here and there is bad here. There is moving around certain powerful gatekeepers, but there's also the lack of sourcing that only gets worse as, you know, people get their news from Twitter with like zero right. sourcing at all. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, do your research on the vaccination. And it's like, what do you, what does that mean? Like yeah. watching YouTube videos that confirm what you already think, you know, that's kind yeah. of where this is all led, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. Um, I think also about like, this is kind of a tangent, but I think it is related. Like, the people who are like obsessed with like everything should be on streaming. I want to watch movies whenever I can. And, and they are big, they're fans of those Marvel movies, but they want to see Shang-Chi on at home at their convenience, whatever, while not quite realizing that the, the result of that advancement will be that there is no incentive to spend $200 million on a movie, which is the kind of movie that you like to watch, you know, yeah, like yeah. it's a, like, uh, let's, let's like, you know, take this into the future, but not realizing that like what apparatus kind of sustains the thing that you like. Um, yeah. The in, the entire I mean entitlement's not a word I love to throw around, but the entitlement to free things like free news, free whatever. It's like if you if you if you don't pay anything for it, who's paying the person who's doing the work to bring you the quality thing? Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that's that's the question of our industry and a number of other industries right now. So please subscribe to Vanity Fair. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but so yeah, let's talk about how we meet Matt Drudge here. I actually think Billy Eichner is tremendous casting, having watched Matt Drudge's speech. He's a little, you know, he's putting a little extra Eichner pepper on it, but it's not that far off from how Matt Drudge fashioned himself at the time. Um, we meet him at the CBS store. This is a, this is actually a move that Drudge lived in Washington, moved to Los Angeles, took this job specifically at CBS so that he could snoop around. And we see him pull things out of dumpsters, but he said that he used to like volunteer in the mailroom so that he could go clean executive suites, uh, so that he'd go deliver mail to executive suites so he could eavesdrop on things. Like the, he was just snooping around CBS was like That's his whole wild. thing. And he got a bunch of scoops that way, like Jerry Seinfeld's payday and all this sort of stuff like that. That all happened. It is true. Um, so what do you think, uh, Katie, of this of this drudge intro here? Well, do I get to quote the the best line yes. of maybe the entire episode, which is, uh, go restock the Dr. Quinn hat, something you can't mess up. It's perfect. It's the best insult of all time. Now, um, no. Is a Dr. Quinn hat like a cowboy hat? I never watched the show. Is oh, it? it's like a, fl- sorry to be the one to be able to answer this. Uh, it's got like a slightly flatter brim. It's like, you okay. know, it's like a rancher hat with like a flatter brim around. Okay. I definitely yeah. remember the Dr. Quinn hats. Although yeah. I was imagining baseball hats that said Dr. Quinn on it. Oh. Like, your version is much better. Yeah. Is it a Dr. Uh, Quinn production hat or a Dr. Quinn the character <laughs> hat? That's the big That's a great question. question. Um, but yeah, like he, I think he's so spot on. Like I did not watch a bunch of Matt Drudge clips, but the like kind of the self-importance, the like fantasy of being Walter Winchell and kind of laying this out for people who are like beyond uninterested. Like you see how that turns him into a blogger of someone who's like the internet will see how important I am. Right. Um, and you know, Matt Drudge really does wear that trench coat and hat and you have all these characters later in the episode commenting on it. And I feel like that intro does such a good job of explaining how this like character came to be basically. Kobe, like, so we, we next meet Matt at this, at this Washington party. 
Because like I said, he's from Washington, so he does have all these connections there. He wanted to be like a regular newsman, but like no one would hire him. So this is how he found it. he was it's a big like weirdo. The whole, it's a whole thing. And it's just like, um, but we, we see him at this party uh, hosted by Laura Ingraham and um, Ingram, sorry. And uh, and Ann Coulter has that great line of nice hat, is it serious? Like mm-hmm. just a beautiful moment. Um we should talk really quickly about about these young conservatives. Uh, we already talked a little bit about like the fact that George Conway's here. Um, I was reading an article about how, for some reason, this made its way into an article. This is before he met Kellyanne Conway. Um, but you can see sort of the line between his like association with Ann Coulter and Laura Ingram to Kellyanne Conway. Um, it was like he he. This article I read at the time was like George Conway has like a taste for willowy blonde, like conservative willowy blondes. I was like, oh, he got one. He got yep, Kelly sure in. Did. Yeah, All right, buddy. Congratulations, George. Um, but there's this fascinating 1995 New York Times Magazine um, issue. Uh, the title is Look Who's the Opinion Elite Now. And it's a bunch of young conservatives. And Laura Ingram is like famously on the cover in a leopard's print miniskirt. Um, and she looks great. And uh, David Brock, who wrote the Trooper Gate article that we talked about last week, who sort of uh, became a, a Clinton devotee later, is also on that cover. But uh, she, Laura became this sort of like Republican pinup, for lack of a better. Like she was like the hottest young Republican sort of at the time. Um, do you think Ann Coulter was mad that it wasn't her? Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah. What, do you, what do you think, Richard? Well, I think, I mean, I. I find all these people despicable, but yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think that something that's so depressing about this episode, like I said uh, earlier, it's like, oh my God, it's the same people doing yeah. this, you know? And, and, and I think that they're all, they're, there's also something weirdly comforting about that, which is it's not that many people. They all know each other and they're all on TV and like, that's them, you know, like, and I know yeah. that there are people working shadowily behind the scenes and not just in media, but in politics. I mean, obviously it's, it's bigger than it looks on television, but like, it's not like, it, it, it's not, you know, it, it's not as if this show were, 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 were um, introducing us to a whole different cast of conservative media pundits who I wasn't familiar with. And it was like, Oh my God, they just keep going. It's like, no, it's the same people. <laughs> it's, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. it's the same crew of, you know, Dartmouth educated monsters um, <laughs> doing all this stuff. And I think, I don't know, there, there's a lot of, in this episode that feels like they're winking, you know, when, um, when Coulter says like, if we let him get away with this, like what, what, do, wh- who else could come and, you know, become right. president, you know, and right. it's like, oh, okay, they're talking about Trump. Uh, no, um, excuse me. She says flabby con men. Right. <laughs> Just to make go. it really right. clear. So it's, yeah, in case it wasn't explicit enough. Um, but I think also in this party scene, there is a sort of Trumpian element in that they are in, they are welcoming this unknown, un, you know, kind of volatile element in Matt Drudge into their old boys and girls club because they see a utility in him, mm-hmm. but really don't know how, how amuck he's going to run, you know? Yeah. And I think that there is a constant process of that in politics, in media. Like, like let's in, let's like have this new shiny thing here that we can maybe kind of extract its resources, but then not really knowing how to control the T Rex. You know, that's also Trump. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. It's like it's like that's the kind of like bigger metaphor for <laughs> Trumpism. I think happening in this episode beyond the kind of more plainly stated one that Coulter that's has so later. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's it's a really. 
I, I love your point, Richard, about like it's the same people. Oh, it's the same people. Okay. Um, was Tucker Carlson at that cocktail party in real life? I, I assumed he was just. I saw a bow tie glinting in the corner somewhere <laughs> for sure. Um, and and calls herself one of the elves, which is something I think we talked about a little bit before. But this idea of like these these uh, young conservative lawyers working behind the scenes to push the Paula Jones case. Um, we see. You know, implication of Ann Coulter's direct involvement later uh, via Susan Judith Light's character. Um, but uh, this is something. This is something that was a very open secret. I didn't know about it because I was a, a teen. But um, this is something Ann Coulter was like bragging about to the press. So it's not like once again when Hillary Clinton said there was a vast right wing conspiracy, <laughs> she was not entirely wrong. <laughs> you know, like. It's not like Bill Clinton's an innocent, but she's not wrong that there, you know, there was a vast or, or at least smallish right wing conspiracy. Um, there's this br- this weird brief implication that Lauren Ingram is gay when she like talk mm-hmm. like takes um, Drudge off to meet her friend Cynthia, who she golfs with. In I honestly, <laughs> I I don't know what that's doing there because there's I googled it. There's no. That's not a rumor around Laura. Uh, she has, oh, interesting. She has a gay brother uh, who who talks uh, trash on her all the time because of her hideous public opinions. Um, so it's one of those. She's one of those people who said such hideous things about the gay community that it would be especially like rich if she were gay herself. Um, but that's not even digging deep. I couldn't find any implication yeah. of that. So I, I'm not exactly sure what that's doing there, I, and but. i think when she ran the conservative paper at dartmouth she sent someone to a campus gay group and then outed them in the paper disgusting yeah, yeah. she's wow. a terrible person on that front um but i also it's one of the fascinating things that this show is doing in this episode in particular where we spend this time at this cocktail party is that in the grand kind of consideration of history they were right he was doing clinton was doing bad things oh absolutely imp- yeah. you know and 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 and, and they 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 were doing it with kind of the wrong motivation in a way, but like, so it, it kind of forces this, not sympathy exactly, but sort of allyship because you're like, yeah, in the long run, like this, this should have been exposed and it should have been way more ruinous than it was. I mean, it really wasn't ruinous at all. Yeah, this is something Joanna and I talked about last week, Richard, when you were in Toronto. Yeah, sorry. Just that, like, no, 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 it's fine. Because uh, someone was kind of writing about our like, you know, political leanings and how I think this is a show that you can't leave your political leanings out of. But also it encourages you to kind of reframe whose side you're going to be on. Like, not that I think it wants you to ally yourself with Ann Coulter, but I think it really gives you room to be like, yeah, they had a point. Like, they're, they're not not for the right reasons, but like there were things going on that like. If you had like a basic I am with the Democrats all the time point of view, then you really um, should rethink that now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let us. This seems like a perfect time to go to Katie's conversation with Kobe Smulders. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, when we've interviewed people on the show before, we kind of just start with, like, what are your memories from this period? And I think you were mm-hmm. fairly young. You were living in Canada, so you might not have been as closely involved in following the story as some other people. But what, what do you remember from this entire scandal? 
Honestly, not much. I think I was, I was still in high school. Um, you know, I was 17, 16, 17. And, um, in Canada, not to say that this story didn't reach Canada because it certainly did, but I think I got more of my knowledge about it through pop culture, through like the SNL sketches that they did. Um, I knew like the headlines, like I knew about the blue dress. I knew about, um, like I have Monica very clearly in my brain from that time from, um, newspapers and magazines, but not understanding the complexity of this story at all. Do you have the sense that I think a lot of us who were young women then, like looking back being like, wow, that story really shaped a lot of how I thought about like women's bodies and sex in a way that I like didn't process at the time, but kind of only looking back, you realize like either how damaging or formative it was in our brains. Did you have that experience? Um, I think it was, I don't think I understood the sex of it. I don't think I understood. And, and it, what's been fascinating to me is uh, being in the show and watching and just being, just being a viewer of the show is how detailed like all, all the details that came out about their sexual relationship um, was so out there um, to like kind of a disgusting degree. Um, so I didn't, I didn't take any of that in, which is fascinating to me that, that I don't know if that was normalized at the time, because to me, the fact that that got out and was publicized um, is a, is, is a bigger Thing than the act itself that somebody would be willing to print that in a, in, a, in, a, in the news media was is shocking to me. Like that's the bigger violation. Exactly. Yeah. Like it's just um, and and Mo- they went after Monica. They judged her and her body and 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 her looks. And I the, again, I'm just speaking to trying to understand because I was just in a totally different category. But like women thought Bill Clinton was like such a fox, like. Yeah. He was such an attractive president to a lot of people. Again, just not in my, I was not looking at the president of the United States <laughs> that way as a 16 year old Canadian girl. Um, but I think to like a quite a large majority of American women and, and women in general, he was seen as, you know, quite a, quite a attractive man. So it was, I think that people became, you know, they villainized Monica um, extremely and it's, it's so, it, it's also just, it's, it's also interesting to see the way, the difference, the way, um, the media is from then till now, mm-hmm. you know, and the sources that it came from back then were, you know, your anchor person, whoever that person was that you trust, whatever, whatever news media you followed, um, whatever station you followed, I mean, or the newspaper or, you know, there, but now, I mean, there's, can you imagine something like this? happening now. I mean, we would, we would be watching live feeds of these moments, <laughs> you know, like it's just, it's so, it's just a different time. And so I think that one of the great things about this show is I, I think we're hearing a lot of like, why are we rehashing this? And I think it's because there's so many details that people didn't even know. Um, they didn't even know about because there wasn't the opportunity either for that person to tell their side of things. Or it just wasn't, it's just, it wasn't covered in the same way um, as, as equally, I think, as it, as it would be now. 
What's in- so interesting about this episode, the third episode, I think, is I think you're seeing the seeds of what we have now, where you see Ann Coulter meet Matt Drudge and Laura Ingram mm-hmm. is there. And you can imagine that that Washington cocktail party that Tucker Carlson's like in the background somewhere. Like, yeah, you're starting just to creepily see... in the corner, just right. watching everybody. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Like, like you're starting to see these figures in this like nascent period. So it is like, a, mm-hmm. oh, that's how we got to where mm-hmm. we are now as Ann Coulter and Matt Drudge at a cocktail party. Well, it's, it's, I can imagine that, uh, politics is quite, you know, it's, it's, it's a small, it's, it's insular. Like it's, 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 it's so fascinating to me to see the, um, trajectory of these people. And I didn't even, I, like, I didn't even know Ann Coulter was involved in this, Mm -hmm, (laughs) you know, mm -hmm. I didn't know George Conway was involved in this. And to see these people involved in such a moment in history in terms of politics. And then to see where they are now is, is, is fascinating to me and those relationships and how they've changed and moved. I read a rumor that like Coulter introduced him to Conway, you know, when it was like, like it, it was just a Ke- Kellyanne, Con- I don't know her former name, but Kellyanne, I should yeah. say. Um, and it's just, it's just the, you know, it's just this, the politics is strange. It's, it's just so strange. Yeah. It can't be much weirder than in Hollywood where, or like, everyone somehow winds up knowing yeah, each other. It, but it's, like, a yeah, different kind of power. Yeah. yeah, there's similarities there, for sure, for sure. No. And the, the abuse of power is definitely there, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So your husband, Taryn Killam, had gotten involved in the show, I think, pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. Production shuts mm-hmm. down, doesn't start for a while. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of come in much later to play mm-hmm. in Coulter. So when he was preparing for it, like, had you already kind of enmeshed yourself in this history via him? Like, were you already thinking about the Clinton era before you signed on for this? I was a little bit, certainly, um, talking to him just about, um, because if I didn't know much about the, the, the Monica Lewinsky of it all, I certainly did not know anything about the Paula Jones yeah. suit, which started it all. Um, so it was just talking to him about that portion of it. Um, we got into a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, he had already been working by the time I, I, I jumped on. So, I, I don't think I read any of the scripts, but it was just interesting talking to him about that relationship. And like, I mean, the, the, one of the most fascinating things, and it's such a weird thing, but it just also feels so human to me about this whole story is when he told me the fact that um, in the settlement that Paula Jones was was trying to get, it was, I can't remember the amount of money, $300,000, let's say, an apology, and for my husband, Steve, to get a role on Designing Women. Oh, yeah. I it's mean, amazing. like she's, they're asking the president of the United States. Like, it's so, it's so, it's so weird. But at the same time, it's also just speaks to this woman who just wants to make her husband happy. And this husband who just wants to have success in his acting career. Yeah. And they see this as that opportunity. Um, which is so overreaching <laughs> and just so, it's so bizarre. But when I, when he told me that, I was like, that cannot be real. It was totally, that real, cannot right? be real. And it's a hundred percent real. The Clintons yeah. were great friends with the creator of that show and they just saw that as an opportunity. And so I went, that's to me, that's really fascinating. And it's been really cool to watch the show as an audience member and seeing these 
more human moments develop between like Linda Tripp and Monica. I mean, that relationship, just navigating, watching that relationship unfold and the manipulation and then the trust and the, the emotions. It's so, it's so interesting to take something that is, you know, a, just a bizarre time in history and there's so many pieces to it, but then to break it down and try to understand the human motivation behind it. It has been interesting to see unfold. Well, and that's what's so interesting about Ann Coulter here, I think, because you're you're finding her at this point where she's not this huge deal that she's going to become later. She's kind of like trying to establish herself. And there's this vibe in the room with the L's where it's like late at night. They're kind of punchy. Like she gets all these funny jokes. Like you see her Mm -hmm. as a human being, which I think in her career, she's kind of like kind of embraced being a villain. Like she hasn't really tried to be seen Mm -hmm. as a human being. And like Mm -hmm. I assume the challenge you're given is to kind of peel back in that and being like, who who is this actual person who gets to this Mm -hmm. point? It It is. I think it's also, I think the version that we do see of her is um, a version of her that's in front of an audience, whether that's literal or a camera. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that really uh, through this time, she saw an opportunity similar to Mad Rudge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they both saw this opportunity um, and sort of space for them in the conservative media um, to create this, this new career for, I mean, she wrote a, a New York Times bestselling book about this journey for her. And that kind of launched her into a different category and people became interested in hearing what she had to say. So it, it, it it's an interesting time for her. It's like the beginning for her, I think mm-hmm. in terms of her, I'm, there was, I'm sure she, there was a lot more before it, but, um, it, it is. And I think that when you're, when you get to see these characters in scenes where they're with their friends or I think in every scene she's drinking. (laughs) (laughs) She walks into the room with champagne and you're like, okay. She literally (laughs) is always uh, drinking, which I don't know if she drinks that much or or whatnot, but I was just always had a bottle of something with me, (laughs) Um, which is an interesting choice. Um, But uh, yeah. So, so I, I think it's, you know, I don't know if it humanizes her, but I think it's just seeing another, I think it's just seeing this human and under these circumstances with friends rather than poised and eloquent and ready for combat kind of behind, behind, in front of, in front of the, the video camera. But you kind of also sense like she's walking to a party with George Conway and she has like, her line about Laura Ingram and like, it, like right. the button on that scene is like her just giving him that look like you feel the like she's performing for him, even though there's not really an audience, like you kind of see the seeds of it. I think the way I see her and I have not met her and I don't know her personally at all. So this is just what I've created via reading about her, reading her own work and watching, watching her speak is I think she loves to play with people. I think she's a very intelligent person and I think she likes to um, play and manipulate situations. Mm-hmm. And I think that they're, you know, initially I was like, I don't know how to do Coulter. I don't know. I don't know what this, I don't know who this person is. And when I tapped into that, and even I think at the beginning when I, before I was, um, when I was talking, when I got hired and then I was talking to producers and to Sarah Burgess, um, our, uh, the, the head writer on this was, um, she's really the only one who gets to have a good time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's having I a great like time. Yeah, I feel like Linda Tripp's kind of having a weirdly dark good time, yeah. but but Coulter's having a blast. Mm-hmm. She is not like 
this could blow up. It doesn't affect her. She's got no skin in the game. She's just kind of puppeting people. And it's, so when I tapped into that, I was like, oh, that's interesting, especially in terms of giving the show another color, you know? Mm It was kind of like, oh, okay, I can wrap my brain around that. Where, because, listen, yes, she wants to see this. She wants to see Bill Clinton impeached, and that is important to her. But, like, how does this excel her own career? You know, like, will it make it, will it not? I don't know. But it's just in the moment of, like, let's just play around and let's just enjoy ourselves because this is insane, you know? So when I tapped into that, that was a helpful direction to go into for a lot of those scenes. Yeah. Maybe and that. also just always have a bottle of wine, I suppose. <laughs> I think, I think it's a later episode where like uh, they get their hands on the, uh, the Monica and Linda tapes. The and, tapes. Like, she's, yes. man, that, that she's like the happiest she's ever been in her life in that scene. I haven't seen that scene, but that was really fun to shoot. <laughs> Um, but I haven't, I haven't got that far in my own personal viewing, but yeah. I'm excited to see it because it was really fun to do. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask about this episode in particular because there's an implied moment at the end of the episode where, you know, Coulter's saying she wants to stop the settlement and then uh, Susan Carpenter, Carpenter McMillan, played by Judith Light, basically makes that happen in the scene with mm-hmm. Terry Killam. And you mm-hmm. don't see, I think Ann Coulter has taken credit for that, that she talked to Susan, but we don't see that on the show. Was that ever shot? Mm. Was that discussed? Or is it we're just supposed to catch that implication? Oh, that's such a great theory. Um, it wasn't anything that we had set up, like shot in and deleted it. But mm. I, I feel like uh, Macmillan and Coulter probably have the same agenda. Yes. Which is, yeah. they, you know, so I think it was just aligned in that way, um, you know, in real life. I don't know if it was timed that perfectly, but I think that they were both after impeachment. Yeah. Um, but there were, I don't think, I don't know. It's not, you know, I don't know what truly happened in, in terms of, of that moment, but it wasn't something that we, we went in to set up, but it yeah. might have come off that way just because of the, the, um, the way the show played out. Yeah. Cause otherwise you, you know, like you see why Susan wants the, wants it to continue, but like it's so, mm-hmm. it's backed up in a way that I think the implication is there. So I guess you can read it either way, which is the best way to yeah. you know, have it yeah. historically. I, I think it's, you know, both these women just want to see him, you know, hung out to dry. <laughs> they really want to get him. And so, you know, it just worked out totally different, different, um, uh, strategies. Um, I know you invest yourself a lot in Ann Coulter and some views that she has that are very much not your view. So I don't want to like mm-hmm. ask you if you feel, if you found yourself agreeing with her or sympathizing with her, but I think there is an extent in the show where it shows what Bill Clinton is doing. It shows kind of the ways in which he is, he is lying and he is manipulating the people around him. And you kind of get where Ann Coulter is coming from in a way that I don't think mm-hmm. I ever would have if I wasn't watching this mm-hmm. show. Did you find mm-hmm. yourself in the same position while, uh, you know, holding on to, to your own personal beliefs of kind of seeing what she was going after? Yeah, it's interesting having Coulter be the one in the room saying some kind of line, like, if we let this slide, what is the next president going to be? If we fast forward, she was a Trump supporter, but I think she was talking about a Trump coming into office yes, in absolutely. that moment, you know? And so I totally get that argument, but it feels like, it feels like, and again, I don't know her personally, um, but it feels like she has beliefs that serve her in that moment. Mm-hmm. You know, that Bill Clinton being impeached might might be her beliefs that he was a womanizer and that when she she felt like, um, you know, Apollo Jones was speaking the truth and she was 
helping her and wanted to be an advocate for her. You know, that's, that's the dream, right? That's the dream. But I also think it was helpful for her career to see him impeached. Yeah. So, you know, I think it, it was for, for me, I had to kind of hone in on this time of history playing her and look to the motivation behind it rather than, um, maybe the beliefs, like, why is she, why is she hustling so much? Why is she so impassioned about this rather than, but then she went on to do X, Y, and Z. So that's completely (laughs) contradictory. Yeah. Um, you know, so I had to kind of put the, um, blinders on like, you know, like in a a horse in a race and just kind of focus on this moment in time. And, and, and honestly, it was intriguing being the one to say that line and having that, you know, fighting for the, for, for, for the, for the, speaking for the women in the room, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I, w- I will say, you know, to, to, to her credit, she is the only woman in a lot of these rooms. And yeah. so there is something behind that, right? There is something to that. But again, we just got to focus on the late nineties. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and who was getting um, what out of what they said? Yeah. And it's, it's so hard, you know, it's so hard to, you know, I, I, I read what she believes and I hear she is pretty outspoken about her beliefs, but it's also hard. Cause like, I don't know this person. I don't know her as a person. So I just, you know, I listened to all of her books <laughs> and I got a new perspective. And I'm grateful for that, but it's just, it's, it's just not, um, you know, what I choose to, to believe in. I saw that you met Monica, I assume over the course of making mm-hmm. this show. Is there anyone else from this saga that you have interacted with or, or heard from in any way? No, um, I haven't. I, I, I haven't. I just met Monica like at, um, our premiere at the premiere of the show. Um, and that was really the one that I, who I wanted to meet, yeah. um, quite honestly, because I mean, what a, you know, what balls on that woman, let's just say, like to have got to be so defined by a moment in history. And I think she's said it in interview, which interviews, which I've been interested, which I've read, which is like, how do you get a job mm-hmm. as Monica Lewinsky after this happened? And I'm like, oh my God, it's so right. Like your whole world your whole being is now attached to this thing that happened. Yeah. And it's, I think it's hard for people to see her uh, uh, in any, or to, to, to separate her from this moment. So to sort of um, not only this project to embrace this project, but to start a major anti-bullying campaigns and to be sort of like, look at me as an example of somebody who was one of the most bullied people in history and let's just let's look at that, you know, yeah. <laughs> and to take something so personal and so um, emotional and so, so hard to use that as a learning tool for people to take that as an opportunity to people for to have people look at it. And now even more in depth, mm-hmm. <laughs> look at it. And, you know, seeing some of these these moments that she was OK with being on the show it's there's a whole new generation of people and of women who are going to come to this 
to see this and and learn about it for the first time and see it completely differently than it was portrayed and see it completely differently but also not only differently but still honestly Mm -hmm. like she could have gone through and been like make me look great (laughs) make me look you know what i would do I would totally do the same thing. I'd be like, I would like to have like script approval. Great I want to know. Yes, exactly. And um, and she chose this very honest version that we that we have today. Um, so I I have nothing but admiration for her and um, and what a journey, what a journey. Yeah. Um, I have a meeting in a minute, so I'm going to unfortunately cut this short, even though yeah, I was no, talking that's about the show. But, um, thank you for doing it. I hope you get um, the rest of the episode soon because the show's so good. I'm like, yeah, and I love I'm that you and your watch. husband get to like be on the same thing together and like. It's pretty fun. It's yeah. been pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, even though I, I don't think you guys share a scene. I can't imagine. Maybe they do. I no, no. Our storylines are so, no, they're so separate. Like we would, <laughs> I don't think, I don't think Jones and, and Coulter would ever be in the same room together. So. Um, well, he's great on it as, and I'm, I'm like a big Southern accent critic. Uh, Thank you. I agree. South, so I'm a. Oh, I think, good. Yeah, it's, okay, it's good, good work. Hear. Yeah. I mean, Emily yes. Ashford also is like mind boggling yes. with like what she's doing. Yes. Jones. So anyway. Um, yes. my congratulations to your whole household and um, thank, thank you, you very much, <laughs> so much lovely to meet to me. you of course hi I'm Jeremy Larson the reviews director of Pitchfork and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit Pitchfork Music Festival all right so we talked a lot of before uh we heard from kobe we talked a lot about new media let's talk a little bit about old media in the shape of michael isikoff watching him track down a story um you know talking to linda trip uh by <laughs> By the way, that's the reflecting pool that they're walking around, right? But also uh, this amazing hair salon scene as Michael Iskoff is like frantically trying to get back control of his story. He had a real like, he just tweeted it out. I worked on it forever. And Matt Dredge just tweeted it out my story <laughs> uh, moment in the episode. Um, but can I just say as a journalist um, or or as someone who tries to pretend they're a journalist, my favorite drudge mo- uh, my favorite Isakov moment is when they're in the salon and Linda's talking uh, about her stuff and uh, and she's like, and you could quote me on that. And he's like, well, we agreed all of this is on the record, so I'm gonna quote you on all. <laughs> like I was just like his weariness. Um, I really loved it. Anyway, so so yeah, let me start with Katie. Like. Um, how do you feel like Isakov and his pursuit of this story is, is being portrayed here? Well, I should look at, I wanted to look up who the actors who playing Isakov because his weariness is so perfect. Like he just is so believable as like someone who's been in a newsroom for a hundred years and it's just like, come on, like, don't give me a code name. Like this is like, he's doing his job really well. He's doing like a higher level of reporting than I've ever done, but he's also just so like, okay, here we go. And like Linda Tripp is so into all of the cloak and dagger aspects here. Like. You know, there's it's such a cliche for Washington shows for have people meet by the reflecting pool, but you're like, yeah, Linda Tripp would plan to meet by the reflecting pool. Like she believes she is in the spy movie. Um, and so I, yeah, I love the, I love the just the interplay between the two of them. I want more scenes between Isakoff and Linda all the time. 
Uh, Danny Jacobs, I believe, the actor. And, and well done, Danny Jacobs. He's placed so well as the sort of like stand-in for possibly an entire generation or generations of people who were just kind of bewildered at this moment in time. Late 90s, rise of the internet, changing kind of sexual mores, cultural mores, a, a sort of mounting tension between right and left. You know, like like America was becoming what it is now then, you know. And mm-hmm. and and he's just sort of there, like what? I I'm just trying to like do the thing that we've done uh, the same way for years and years and years, and now I have to deal with these kind of ego mad, you know, opportunists and internet people and all this stuff, and it's poignant in a way, but it's also like, dude, wake up, like like see what's coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also love um, that while he's getting this. I mean, yeah, Linda's. Um, <laughs> The push and pull between Linda's performative exasperation and outrage when he like calls her work phone and she's like Sarah Paulson's playing her like oh 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 my god I can't believe it. it's just like the faces she pulls incredible uh the push and pull between that and her like obvious glee and thirst to be at the center of this cloak and dagger giving him a, a code name uh meet me at my salon sort of stuff and then and then how quickly she jumps on this story that their cousins. Oh, um, yeah. when the Washington Post um, reporter, uh, you know, is like, what's all this? <laughs> um, and uh, the phrase he's been a wonderful cousin to me has never been said by a human being. It's <laughs> so good. And she's so proud of herself. <laughs> I know. She's like, I just crushed that, by the way. <laughs> um, yeah, I just I, I loved all of this. And like the idea of like other reporters sniffing around like the, you know, the Washington Post. It does. It does at this time become a race. As with any of these big stories, um, it's harder now in the more internet forward age. But I, we do often get a sense of like people racing to get the story and get the story uh, reported through uh, the way they need mm-hmm. to to rise to the standards of their publication and stuff like that. So um, I love all of that. Yeah, so I'm I'm a big fan of of uh, of Linda. I mean, we'll, we'll we'll get back to a little bit more Linda, but like the her buying three copies and scanning the newspeak for her name it's just yeah i'm so embarrassed for her i was just like i I literally out loud said yikes i mean talk about uh, a sense you know? memory like that copy of newsweek that font like my dad was just a like loyal newsweek subscriber i think i talked about this last week and i just yeah. like i remember how those magazines felt in your hand yeah and it, it forces you to think about like throughout history but certainly now in like a much more like there's so much media and information out there how many of the famous figures that we know kind of insisted themselves into that point on purpose. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like I'm not saying that like everyone who's famous or infamous asks for that. That's far from the truth, but like probably more than we realize we're having those private car moments of like obsessively reading about themselves and, you know, and kind of stoking that even if the coverage was somewhat negative, you know? It's yeah. I mean, you, and you thought. see it play out now on social media where yeah. like you have famous people being like, weighing in on ex controversy it's like you had the choice not to say anything yeah. and like you're just putting yourself right yeah, in the middle of it exactly right and i think what's interesting if you if you look at the various documentaries that exist um the the hillary doc on hulu etc cetera, etc cetera, there there are these talking heads that come up over and over like lucy and goldberg is one susan um is another Isakoff is on all of them. So like as much as he's playing like the world weary old school journalist, like he is 
continually inserting himself also in this narrative. You know what I mean? Um, he's like, I was the guy. Uh, and I think he, you know, he did a lot of work around it. He should be proud of the work that he did. Well, uh, proud of, I don't know, all of it, but proud of some of the work that he did. But like, he, I think he also, there's a bit of Linda in him that he also sure. wants to be the center of this conversation. I want to be clear. All either of us, us, you know. Yeah, like yeah. either of us is ever at the center of a major story. I will be on every documentary they make about him. Just <laughs> put that on the record. Um, all right. So b- before we get to uh, some of our uh, major ladies of the hour, let's just stick with Bill for a second. There is this um, big Supreme Court case that he loses, Clinton v. Jones, May 1997. Um, that questions whether or not um, a president, um, if it's a crime, if the president committed an office, it reminds me of the Nixon line, right? When the president does it, it's not illegal um, yeah. sort of thing. Uh, Clinton loses this. Uh, even even Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, does not go. It does not go his way. And we see him talking with his counsel, Bob Bennett, um, played by Chris McDonald, who will be an ongoing figure in all of this. Um, and I like that we see his anger more in this episode because it you know i i think it's important that we not just see like bill clinton the jolly seducer but also like this is a powerful man and i don't think you're not that powerful if you don't have this other strain in you i think Hmm. um what do you what do you think richard yeah i you know it's a it's a tricky thing to sort of because I feel like of all of this, of all of these people being sort of shown in this in this light and in, in the, the gaze of this show, Clinton himself is, and Hillary too probably like is the the one they have to kind of invent the most for in some mm-hmm, ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like, okay, how do you manage that portraiture? And I, I think, yeah, I think it is really crucial that we see this sort of, you know, um, fearsome sort of power you know, powerful guy versus just like the sort of like hangdog cad who is sort of not very nice to Monica Lewinsky. You know, I, I think that like, the, obviously it takes a lot to get into that office and it takes a lot of um, what we see in these scenes where he's trying to bend, you know, he says not even Ruth because like, you know, he appointed her, right? Or like, like he yeah, nominated like months her? Months earlier, he like yeah. not that long ago. And yeah. so like, you're like, okay, so he wanted he wanted a an, you know an agent on the bench just as the Republicans do now with their all their stacked idiots, you know, like 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 this is a this is a constant thing, and Clinton is by far, or you know, very much not above that. Um, and so yeah, I think it's crucial that we see that that sort of side of him, and not just like how Monica sees him. I guess. I feel like I'm going to be like the foremost Clive-Owen defender on this, but I just feel like his performance keeps growing for me, and the way that he captures both that like seductive quality and the anger, which in his scenes with Monica. Uh, in this episode, I think you see the combination of them really powerfully um, that he he kind of gets that seductive quality by knowing that he has, uh, you know, that forcefulness, too. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I think it's uh, Clive Owen is a really interesting casting choice, I think, because he's I, he's not an obvious like the way that Billy Eichner uh, or Kobe Smulders, I think, are like I can see it really easily. This is not one I could see really easily, but I like what he's doing. So I don't know. Yeah. Um. And just as you were saying, Richard, about, like, the Republicans are repugnant, but they're right uh, in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. Clinton's right when he says, when he has his, when he says to Bob Bennett, like, our best friend died, they accuse us of killing him the same day. They're trying to use the la- uh, the, the legal system to overturn an election. All of that is also true. Mm-hmm. Is Clinton innocent in this? No. 
but uh, you know, are people trying to get him out of office because they don't like him and they're not like the Republicans, uh, especially because Republican lawmakers had to resign their positions because of their own sexual imbalances. They don't have the moral high ground necessarily, um, but it doesn't mean you know that he's pure either. I think on either on any side of this, you can be like, well, they're kind of right and also kind of gross at yeah. the same time. All right, so let's talk about Linda, and Monica, and Kathleen, and then we'll end with Paula. Um, Linda's ongoing thing in this episode is this idea that she's been assigned to give Gerald McCraney a tour of the Pentagon. She keeps saying, like, I've got the McCraney tour. I can't talk to you. Gerald McCraney lands in 20 hours. I have to give him a tour. It's so important. And then it is, like, devastating. And she's, like, watching Major Dad throughout the episode. So, like, like me, I think, on a weekend watching uh, Ann Coulter footage, she's, like, (laughs) over-preparing for her Gerald (laughs) McCraney tour. Um, And uh, and then at the last minute, just tossed off by her boss, Ken Bacon, played by Jim Rush, uh, Gerald McCraney doesn't have time. And that is, that feeds, I think this episode is one of the smartest, like, the most balanced episode for that thread giving us this sense of insignificance that 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 linda feels that she puts on monica later when she's composing this like email for her and stuff like that like she uses that word insignificance in that email she does she says she says i feel disposable insignificant used uh is what she says and she puts so much spice into that you know it's very crystal clear that she's talking about herself um as she's writing for monica but the the i think the gerald mccraney tour is such a smart piece of storytelling it's such a small thing to begin with she builds it up to be this big thing and then it just blows away because it was always this tiny thing to begin with and as i think her boss said like sort of beneath her dignity to do in the first place um i don't know richard how does how does old major dad play for you in this episode I mean, the show had been off the air for like five years already. For like, 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 had it tra- really? Yeah, wow. she's treating it like it was this, like, like, uh, you know, I don't know who who the equivalent now would be, but like, it's just, it's sad, and it's, um, you know, I think that this show, like, as a lot of these Murphy produced projects have the, 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 you know, American Crime Story, like, it skirts the line of like, is this? Are we making fun of this person? Are we sort of like putting them in such a deliberately pathetic spot but i think that it, but they kind of don't at the last minute you know um and this yeah this one i i think that there's the way that linda's like um will to power or will to sort of importance is such a a driving thing in her is just really well illustrated and i think so you have to have these moments of sort of like banal indignity um to sort of better highlight that yeah i think every time she talks about her job like something about the way she says jcoc just makes it sound like She's puffing it up with the way that she says the word. Um, and yeah, I agree with Joanna that it's just such a good illustration and all that. And it goes so hand in hand with all of her like cloak and dagger stuff with Isakoff, uh, and just like the way that she wants to like seem busy. Uh, like kind of like tells Monica she doesn't have time to talk to her, tells she tells Isakoff she doesn't have time to talk to him either. Like it all it all just leads so well to who we're understanding Linda to be. Next time I don't want to talk to someone about something, I'm just going to be like, I can't get dragged into this. Joe McCraney's plan lanes in three right, hours. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, let's talk about Linda and Kathleen. This So this impulse that Linda has to twist what we have seen, you know, like we get to see Kathleen Willey, um, played by Elizabeth Reeser, like, uh, you know, 
flustered and upset uh, in her interaction. So in the version of events of the show, that is the truth of what happened. So we know that in the version of events of the show that we are watching, Linda is telling a deep untruth here um, and has twisted the narrative. And she has these, the phone call with Kathleen and then, and then is at Kathleen's house and like barges into her house and all this stuff like that. And I think um, Elizabeth Reeser's performance here, Kathleen's realization and read of Linda is so devastating and accurate. Um, and um, as we as we mentioned when we when we started talking about the show, Kathleen Willey is one of the women who showed up to the Clinton Trump debates um, as Trump's guest. Uh, she's one of the accusers sitting there uh, with Juanita Broderick um, and Paula Jones. And uh, it's a uh, I think this is a really interesting portrayal. I have always liked Elizabeth Reeser as an actress, and I think this is a really interesting portrayal of someone. Uh, having a journey on a journey this episode do you guys have any <laughs> kathleen Willey thoughts? she just seems like a nice person who didn't want any of this and like you know she's married to a clinton donor so i don't know like if she really was a nice person who got dragged into it but i love elizabeth reeser's performance because she's such a great contrast to linda especially in that first episode i think where linda is doing her like puffery thing and and uh kathleen's like okay well this is a job so let's just go about our business and it kind of gets to this really tragic point in this episode where, you know, she's being betrayed by Linda, like right there in front of her. Richard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't really have much to add. It's just sort of, it's, I think this is one of the more interesting, like I didn't know this stuff kind of sections of the show. Um, yeah. I didn't know Kathleen Willie's name at all. I, I knew the name, but I didn't, I guess I, 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 I guess I knew more about Paula Jones and Lewinsky and everything. Um, but like, the way it's so easy for, I mean, in this case, Linda specifically, but anyone to just kind of throw a name around to kind of gain access to a conversation or gain, you know, gain a little more, move a little closer to the center of something. And then it has huge repercussions for that person just by saying their name, you know, like, I, I think it's really kind of sad and scary. And again, you know, I'm probably beating this drum too much, but like a kind of omen of like what's to come in terms of like, you know, calling people out online or throwing people under the bus or whatever. Like, hmm. it, it feels very familiar uh, in a way that I guess I wish it didn't. Can I, I ask thought, about yeah. that um, that name check thing? We haven't talked much about the scenes between Monica and Bill in this episode. Yeah, yeah, but the yeah. way that she's just like, yeah, Kathleen Willey? And she kind of mentions it offhand. We know if that's what really happened. It feels like a weird way for all of this to transpire. I actually didn't follow that chain exactly but i i it feels like such a specific thing that like yeah the way that sarah is writing the show i don't think she would put it in that way uh if it, if it weren't the case speaking of like names being dropped i actually audibly gasped when bill clinton says linda tripp's name i'm like oh you're, you're in trouble <laughs> now <happening>? yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's like, on, it's like on Game of Thrones when like the North and like the Lannisters like meet. And you're like, oh shit! <laughs> Especially because like up to that point, she would never say this out loud. But her real leverage was that people didn't know who she was, so she yeah. could kind of like hmm. imply that she had access, imply that she had internal knowledge, and kind of get, take that to a certain point. But once the people she's speaking about actually find out about her specifically, it's like, wait, who? You know, yeah. like, and she's doing what? Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. So she lost that. She lost that advantage in a way, if you, if you can call it yeah. that, like, in that moment. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And but like, and it's what she like. She's mad earlier that she calls Bruce Lindsay, and Bruce Lindsay doesn't call her back from the White House. And Kathleen's like, "Oh, I just called Bruce Lindsay and talked to him." And Linda's like, "God damn it!" And then, <laughs> and then Bill Clinton's like, "Have her talk to Bruce." And like, I'm kind of a little bit on Linda's side when she's like, "I try. I I already tried that." 
yeah i was not yeah. important enough then like i'm not gonna do it now it's just kind of like okay and monica Rem- like doing errands for bill um you know it's like i i believe that that would have happened but yeah because like, she spends the whole you know later we see her like in the middle of everything being like i have to warn bill and it's like absolutely not please do not do that yeah, yeah. Um, I just want to say real quick that Monica's outfit in that scene where she talks about Kathleen, I think it's that scene where she's got like kind of the black turtleneck and that like animal print skirt. Great outfit. Love it. I would wear yeah. it right now. Fantastic. Um, also, someone was talking to me about the show and they're like, because Bill keeps offering Monica a Diet Coke. And so someone asked me like if they thought, uh, and they're probably listening to this podcast right now. And they asked me like, if I thought Diet Coke was a code for like some, and I was like, no, it's just an excuse to go to a second location. And they were like, oh, never follow Bill Clinton to a second location. Oh, and yeah. I'm like, yeah, exactly. But it's it's like, kind of code though. It's like, you want to go like smoke cigarette and like, you want to go to my side office. Like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah. 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 All right. Last, but of course not least, we've got Paula and Susan. Um, Paula's not in this episode a ton, but uh, we get more of her terrible husband, his, his uh, terrible acting and his injured pride. And His acting is not so bad. Paula's acting is terrible. That's true, but he's and still hilarious. Um, and uh, and and how that makes him. Uh, I mean, we don't know how exactly how it all went down with Susan. Like talking to Judith Light last week, she's like, "I don't think Susan's manipulative." I don't know that you could see this what happens here and not think of Susan as manipulative. But uh, Ann Coulter does say she called. She got in contact with Susan to hmm. try to stop. The settlement because if they settle the republican actors behind the scene can't get what they want so paula jones lawyers want to settle but the young conservatives helping them do not want to settle because if they settle they can't get clinton to testify which is what they want because he'll lie so they are invested in stopping the settlement and so when susan comes in and is like oh well he's not really paying its insurance and no one will ever really believe that paula is innocent if she settles you know like working paula's husband like that uh, is a way to further the Coulter Conway, et cetera, agenda. Um, and what I think is a little devastating in all of this is like, so they were offered $700,000. In the end, they only get, I mean, I don't want to say only $150,000 more, but $850,000 versus $700,000, not that much more. And he, Clinton never apologized. So like the difference after all of this, I mean, was a lot of other things came to light. But like for Paula, being dragged through all of this, wasn't a huge difference in what she got in the end. Um, so anyway, yeah. What do you guys think of, I guess, uh, Richard, what do you think of the Paul of it all in this episode? Yeah. I mean, I, I worry, I, I, since I started watching the show, I've been worried about like the portrayal of Paula and her husband. And I'm like, is it cartoony? And I know that Paula Jones kind of does sound like that. Like that actually is pretty, I mean, I think the Taryn Killam is a little bit SNL-y for my, taste in that in mm-hmm. as the husband but but yeah i mean i think again going back to like the these Coulters and graham ingrams are right at least about like that clinton is doing bad things and they should be come to light but i think here you sort of see the more cynical side of it you know they, they are not advocating for paula jones in any respect right. you know yeah and 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 obviously to get a bigger thing done sometimes you can't focus on individuals i mean and i mean maybe you can if you do it really conscientiously but like you know you have to kind of focus on the main target uh, the main objective and paula jones's justice and apology is far from that and and i think that that's sort of the sad realization that 
for her that she's kind of caught up in something that is not about her. That's two people. T- that's two camps, two parties, two sides talking over her and using her mm-hmm. as a sort of debating prop or whatever. And I think we've seen that recur in uh, lots of shows and whatever about the sort of political system, the justice system, where these these people are are sort of cast aside when their utility has run out. Mm-hmm. Um. All right. So we will we will find out what happens. We know what happens to everyone. But like, uh, I really liked this episode for. I mean, maybe insider journalistic media reasons. Um. But I'm really excited to hear you guys cover this show. Uh, for the rest of the season, I'm obviously going to miss still watching so much. Um, I want to just really quickly thank um, the Academy. No, I want to thank our <laughs> listeners, uh, without whom, honestly, this show is not what it is without you guys writing in. You make me, you've always made me a better TV watcher. That is just true. And then I want to shout out someone who I like often forget to mention, but who has been like a hero in the trenches, which is Dave Gonzalez, mm. our producer. Uh, he's just incredible. He has crashed countless episodes for us, tireless editing, all this sort of stuff. Uh, he's, he's a, he's a true, true hero and he will continue doing great work on the show, uh, with Richard and Katie when I'm gone. So I just want to thank Dave publicly and vociferously. Um, and thank you too. Um, thank you, Richard, obviously for, uh, saying yes when I asked you to do this, uh, so long ago and Katie for, for swooping in and, and picking up, uh, the banner, the mantle. I really, really appreciate you both. And I love you both. You know that. So. And if anyone wants to read why Vanity Fair decided to impeach Joanna, you can go to our website. <laughs> There's a full rundown of the articles and everything. So, yeah. uh, I want I want to thank Joanna, obviously. And again, you can hear us all uh, falling over ourselves to praise our little gold men, but also beg the listeners to stick with us. I know you love Joanna. Surely you love her more than the rest of us. But I promise no. to try to be <laughs> no, no. the best Joanna I can be. I will be reading your emails. I will be reading the tweets. Uh, please stick with us because uh, we've got a great season ahead. Yeah. And I mean, succession's coming, so <laughs> the, the political machinations have only just begun. Uh, yeah, so you can email Katie uh, or, or someone else in the future, stillwashingpot at gmail.com. I hope you guys keep listening. I hope you'll follow me wherever I go next. And uh, it's been it's been the best. Thanks so much. Bye. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starred Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people and a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.